I'm Dave Laird. I'm Matt Booker. And I'm Kyle Beachy. And it's about the question of why am I watching so much shit? It's not about the shit. It's about me. Why am I doing it here in the Great Concavity? Yes, wow. doing shit is what we like to do in the Great Concavity. <laughs> and episode 45 is no exception. Uh, Kyle, thanks so much for joining us, man. It's great to have you. Is that oh, from thank the Suffering you. Channel? What is the shit? No, no, that's from the uh, the interview, the Larry interview. It's, it's, Larry McCaffrey. It's a, it's a okay. deep cut. It's a, it's a deep cut, yeah. Oh, that is a deep cut, yeah. The uh, 1993 interview. That's exactly Which really right. is like the piece that I probably go back to maybe the most on a regular basis of Wallace's. Mm. Um, yeah, I tend to use it really often in, in teaching. Um, I'm writing a course right now for English 11 for the school that I teach for, and there's quite a bit from that in there. And um, yeah, I find it to be some of like the most, kind of like in terms of like Wallace's theory on literature and art and what it does for us in our humanity, I think it's like probably his best, <laughs> most you know lucid distillations of that. Yeah, yeah, it's very, um, it's super quotable. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm. So our guest today, before we get into the bullshit, is uh, Kyle Beachy, <laughs> and Kyle is a friend of mine, and I'm honored to call you my friend, Kyle. It's really great Thank to have you. you on the Great Concavity. I feel like we've known each other a long time. Um, have. Kyle is a professor, associate professor, I believe, if that's correct. Yes, it is. Rose- Thank you. Roosevelt University in Chicago <clears throat> and he's also the author of an awesome novel called The Slide which if you haven't read I mean I'm biased towards it but you should totally read it um, <laughs> and you know when I when I first read it uh, actually I went back and looked at my email because I knew I had an email thread of someone on the Wallace list recommending it to me and so I found that thread and it was from 2009 and I I think at this point, Kyle, I'm not sure you were even on the Wallace email list and that you didn't pipe in whenever someone recommended your novel, but <laughs> your former teacher at that time did, who's Kathleen Fitzpatrick. That's and true. Yeah. She, and she piped up and said, hey, I know Kyle. He was one of my first students way back in the day at Pomona. And she's like recommending the novel to everyone else. And so after that kind of double recommendation, I was like, I got to go read this thing. And it, <laughs> it is awesome. And I loved it. So I just wanted to share that with you. Cause I don't even know if, were you around for that? Did you remember that? Like being, being <laughs> spoken about in the third person on the Wallace listserv? You know, I think, I think actually, <clears throat> well, first of all, thank you. Um, that's, it's, that's very kind of you to say. Uh, I, th- I think, Kathleen kind of got word to me. I think she sort of mentioned like, hey, you know, whatever else is going on with book publicity, you should at least know (laughs) they're speaking of you on the Wallace list. And that was it. That was great. That was wonderful. Um, And Kathleen, Kathleen, of course, is just a majestically smart and uh, incredibly rad woman. Um, And I think just to follow up on that, I think I was actually in her first ever class at Pomona. I think I was one of one of the wow. lucky ones who saw her, hmm. I guess now, now I realize she must've been incredibly nervous or whatever. Um, but yeah, she was, <laughs> she was an incredible instructor. Just an incredible teacher. 
And, you know, I've known Kathleen a long time as well and um, have hung out with her in Austin, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And she, I remember when she went to Pomona, um, you know, she published her first book, it was called Planned Obsolescence. It was phenomenal. She actually has a new book out right now. We'll give her a plug. It's called Generous Thinking. And I think if you're mm-hmm. interested in like what academics do, um, that it's the subtitle of her new book is a radical approach to saving the university. We will come back to Kyle Beach. I swear <laughs> to God, I thought you were going to say saving the universe, <laughs> <clears throat> but, but all of this is, uh, related to David Foster Wallace, because I really think, um, Kathleen gets a lot of the credit for being her idea to hire David Foster Wallace at Pomona. Mm. Um, and so I think this is a question that you have, been asked before or in the past but so you were at Pomona but not really while David Foster Wallace was teaching there do you want us to go back in time a little bit and tell us what that experience was like whenever he was interviewing there sure yeah I actually I actually have incredible um incredibly fond memories of that uh I was I was initially a philosophy student uh philosophy major at Pomona, uh, and I only kind of backdoored my way into being an English major uh, as my second major. So I kind of was always a, a little bit of an outsider in the English department. But I, I remember being in some class, and I think it might have been a class on like the revenge tragedy as trope. Um, and the professor mentioned, you know, where the this job search for this new creative writing chair. Um, you know, it. it, it it was very clear that it was going to be a very big deal, this chair. Um, and so they were sort of taking volunteers about, uh, you know, for um, being involved in some of the search because they wanted to put together kind of like a mock-up workshop. Um, and it's, I think it's important to say that I wasn't writing fiction at this point in my life. Like I didn't actually start um, trying to write fiction until I got out of uh, school. I started kind of the summer after I left college. Um, but somehow I sort of like uh, weaseled my way into the uh, very, very sought after uh, workshop that Dave came and gave on campus. Um, and I remember it because there was, it was one of those kind of very old, hallowed, uh, you know, ivy covered buildings. Um, and the room itself had this kind of rectangular table and all the all of the professors were sort of there to watch. It, it was kind of a weird thing because I didn't know anything about um, Dave Wallace and I didn't know anything of, about creative writing at all. Um, but it was very clear that this was a, this was a huge deal to um, the faculty as well. It was kind of like, right. holy cow, there's this guy on campus. Um, so he came and he gave a workshop. I was there and listened to him kind of hold forth. Um, and then there was a lunch and I kind of ended up like walking with him. Um, and the, it turned out that we had some weird things in common, like the double major thing. I happened to be born in Ithaca, New York. Um, and oh, I, was, yeah, yeah. I was at the time, I was a TA for a logic class. So we had like, we had things in common. Um, mm. And he ended up saying the funniest thing anyone has ever said to be in a dining hall about, um, you know, it was just a kind of throwaway comment about the salad bar. Um, and sneeze guards. And it was just like this, this wonderful moment. But in any case, um, he then did a reading and he read um, Incarnations of Burned Children. Um, and he read um, 
the part that ended up being from the Pale King about the kid uh, when he's trying to touch his lips to every inch of his body. I was just thinking about right. that story like 10 minutes before we started. And then he read he read another thing that I don't know that I've seen anywhere. Um, and it was it, it was about, oh no, it, no, it must have also been from the Pale King. Isn't there a bit in the Pale King? Um, and I, I'm terrible at this because my knowledge of Pale King pales. Uh, um, it's terrible compared <laughs> compared to my other um, sort of authorities. Um, but it, it, there's a character, I guess it's Lane, um, when he's a kid who sends out all these invitations and nobody comes to his party because everyone hates him because he's oh, such Leonard, an, an Leonard incredible. It, it's Leonard Leonard Stessig. Mm. Okay, so he he read that also the sort of kid part. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and it was, it was an amazing thing, and everyone was very moved, and it was stunning. Um, but it was one of those things that I don't think I really fully appreciated what was going on until about, you know, six or seven years later. So you had not read him at that point? or No, I had read, first read nothing. Nothing at all. Um, I think I might have, I might, someone might have given me, um, at that point, so it, it was what? It was 96, 97. I think someone, like, pointed to Infinite mm. Jest up on their bookshelf. Um, and then someone else was like, well, you have to read this thing about cruise ships. Um, and I think that was, mm-hmm. if anything, if I crammed it, 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 like if I forced any reading before the event, I think it was the cruise ship. That's a good, that's a good gateway. I, I agree with that recommendation. Right. right. Yeah. I was also a terrible student though. So I might've just, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> what was the sneeze guard comment that he made specifically? Do you remember? No, I don't. I don't. I wish I did. Mm. I mean, I remembered he made a comment about Sage Hen because that's the Pomona mascot. Um, oh, yeah. Be, being a flightless bird and tasting like chicken. Um, but beyond that, I don't remember the sneeze guard <laughs> comment. Something kind of like pathetic, I guess, in that yeah. context. Yeah. 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 It was it was humanizing. He was something he bodily. Real way yeah. Of, uh, yeah, probably. Probably a little probably a little body mm-hmm. um, but it, you know mm-hmm. it was it was it was an interesting day and i really did feel like an outsider the entire time um so i mm-hmm. you know i was kind of triply intimidated by the whole process <laughs> can you can you back up a little bit then and tell us about your transition from being a philosophy student to uh creative writing yeah i mean i think the short story is i didn't really have the chops for um you know hardcore philosophy of the mind and um metaphysics and philosophy of language i just don't think i was up for it i think yeah, i think my stuff. yeah it's 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 really um incredibly analytic and incredibly um uh pinpoint in its sort of distinctions in a way that i just couldn't find a passion to really continue you know when you when you get to that stuff <laughs> yeah. at a certain point you start you just start breaking pieces apart and like running with the little piece that you've broken off and making a whole career out of that little tiny piece Um, totally that was my experience with like every critical theory course i took during my master's just like i kind of get this one sentence in this essay and i'm just gonna like you know focus my whole like academic writing around this completely that's yeah yeah. and i and i wasn't up for that but i did know that i was you know i had an at least a passing interest in um ethics and could find that ethics gave me a kind of doorway into literature that I hadn't um, totally had before. So I think for me, it ended up being that I was I was studying philosophy and interested in philosophy. And then that sort of, like I said, backdoored my way into being interested about books that asked philosophical questions. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, it was a matter of I studied abroad um, in Cambridge for a semester 
and just ended up leaving there with a huge number of English credits. So it really was just sort of a practical, I might as well just do this while I'm at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that question of ethics um, in writing, you know, Wallace's father was an ethics professor. Mm-hmm. Uh, a philosophy professor of, um, focusing on ethics, but I wonder if that affected your um, direction in writing fiction. And that, you know, how would you say that ethics influenced your idea of like what is real or what is realism when it comes to representing, you know, life on the page? I mean, that's that's interesting. Um, it's interesting to try to answer that now because I find myself now at age 40 um, being far less uh, being far less interested in the kind of standard questions about character and story um, and relationships be- between characters uh, that I really started out being so interested in. So I think at the time, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the, the stories or the stories I wanted to emulate, the sort of stories that made me want to attempt writing my own were the ones that uh, in some way, you know, had a character confront some nature of existential crisis. You know, I myself as a um, a, a child of great privilege uh, confronting for the first time in my life certain challenges um, that were basically you know, rooted in the fact that I didn't understand the world, despite all of this education that I went through. Um, I think I was just at the time very, very curious about, um, you know, literary representations of loss and confusion and, you know, being racked by the challenge of making difficult decisions. Um, so yeah, at the time, that was really it. I guess the sort of irony is that now, um, where I am in, in, my tempestuous relationship with writing fiction is that I'm far more interested in language and in, um, you know, sentence structure and in the technicalities than I am in character and psychology and those sort of questions. Hmm. That's interesting. And I wonder if that has anything to do with your, um, you know, did you do any critical writing in between there after you publish a novel and you go pretty deep into teaching fiction mm-hmm. from a craft perspective. You know, as a craft, do, are you looking at, you know, chiefly questions of criticism? Or are you looking at, like, workshop exercise type stuff? Because I'm, where I'm going with this is eventually, you know, one reason why we have you on the podcast today is teaching infinite jest. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of different ways you can do that. You could do it from kind of those realism, you know, character development plot, mm-hmm. you know, questions or from straight craft. I mean, his sentence structure is phenomenal and, in that book. Um, but like, what was it? Was there, I'm just curious what the transition was. If there was, if it was criticism, if it was just workshop craft exercises or. Well, well, I mean, I, uh, let me, let me say this is that, you know, I, one of the reasons I'm so excited to be here to talk about this um, is because I, I do, I do firmly believe, I have a real deep conviction that um, th- there is a way to talk about literature in the classroom, in the creative writing classroom, uh, that's that's distinct from um, at least anything I was exposed to as a literature student. Uh, so yeah, I think I think that there is great untapped and uh, as far as I can tell, largely um, un, 
what what's the word unrespected um, un <laughs> undiscussed um, potential in the creative writing classroom and I think it's actually been going on for years that the way that we talk about books the way that we talk about literature in creative writing classrooms is is unique and it's it's broad um, and it, it allows for all sorts of conversations that I don't at least, and, and again, the asterisk here is I don't know what other classrooms are like, but my experience in capital L literature classes hasn't given me the same sort of nature of conversation. Um, so I, I guess back then, yeah, I did. I did. I, I wrote a little bit of criticism of book reviews and things, um, but mainly what I did was um, I was teaching. You know, I mean, that was that was the gig that I was super fortunate to kind of fall my way into um, after I finished my MFA and that was supporting me as I was trying to sell the slide and that, you know, soon after the slide came out became my full-time position at Roosevelt. Uh, so really it was just that I, I had to stand in front of classrooms and, and come up with conversations about books. Um, and I didn't, like I said, like the same thing I said about studying philosophy i don't have the chops to go deep down the path of you know what we characterize as literary analysis or capital c criticism um that stuff's just to me feels a little lifeless um and so a, a lot of it was kind of figuring out okay well how given my absence of chops you know as as a hardcore academic how am i going to talk to these students about these books with with the big 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 you know capitalized important reality that i felt like a giant fraud so you, you know which every i think you know every professor does and continues to for a long time but i definitely felt like i was way out you know over my head i had fooled people so uh, how am i going to do this yeah how do you feel 10 years later about that question like, do you feel like you've found you found your way? You've like figured out some strategies to connect with students to teach this stuff. Dude is know, a tenured professor, man. He's got to feel pretty yeah. good. <laughs> I know, yeah, you probably feel better now than you did ten years ago. But like, to what extent does that feeling of fraudulence still persist? Uh, do you feel like you've managed it? Like, I'm really curious about sort of that question. You know, it's it's very interesting because this is the first time I've ever had my own TA. So I have a TA this semester. Oh yeah. Um, and yeah, one cool. of the things I'm finding about having a TA is whether I mean to or not, I've just been incredibly upfront with him about, you know, sort of in like a, an almost therapeutic way. Like I'm sort of catharting all over him about my, <laughs> my, my, my complex of, you know, be feeling like a fraud. And so I'm, you know, I'm in the, in efforts to be clear to him about like, yo, this is, this is what it means to be a teacher. It means to sort of doubt your authority um, I, I found myself, you know, finding a, a kind of authority in speaking of my absence of authority, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Paradoxically. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I feel, I feel better. I feel like I'm a good teacher. Like I feel, I feel as mm -hmm. if I, I, I prepare really, really, really hard. I mean, I have, Mm -hmm. I have far too copious notes every time I go into a classroom. And when the thing I'm trying to work on now is actually less micromanaging, right? Because the, the real risk of that yeah. sort of fraud complex is you, to compensate, you over, you, you over prepare, you micromanage, sure. and you, you sort of suck the organic life out of a classroom. And, you know, I've caught myself <laughs> doing that before, and it's not, it's not cool. Uh, and so I would like to, you know, one of the things I'm really working on is trying to become a little bit more confident in the fact that a class will, a, a class will find its path 
um, you know, during the two yeah. and a half hours we had together, we're going to, we're going to get to the things. Mm-hmm. So let me, let me ask you, you started teaching this class <clears throat> really just on infinite jest last fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, give us a little bit of backstory there because I know that you've taught yeah. the novel before. This is yeah. not your first time teaching it. So maybe set us up like wh- who you were, you know, I think it was maybe 2011, 2012 when I talked to you about you were teaching it. Um, that, that's been a while. Like what, how has your approach, um, changed and why did you want to teach it again? Yeah. I, um, I, I actually, I found here the listings for humanity. So the first time I taught the class was actually at the school of the art Institute of Chicago. Um, and that was in the, I wanted to talk to you about that too, because I, I <laughs> remember you and I, I was telling you like a lot of people from my school, like ended up there. Yeah. I feel like we had a lot of like people yeah. in common there and like, yeah, that was really cool. Well, so one thing I can say before I get into the sort of maybe less interesting stuff, one thing that I, I was able to do was kind of parlay my, uh, fortuitous inclusion in that one day sort of interview of uh, David Wallace when he came to Pomona. I sort of, I used that as a, as a cause to actually write him about going to grad school. And, you know, I said, look, I'm, I'm either right. going to go to the University of Arizona um, in Tucson um, or I'm going to go to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And he didn't respond to me until months, months, months later. And he acknowledged as much. He said, look, I'm sure you've already made your decision. Um, but, <laughs> it, you know, his, his, his sort of gist was go to the Art Institute. You know, of, <laughs> if, unless you're a realist and unless you are writing incredible traditional, incredibly traditional stories, go to the Art Institute. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I did end up there uh, as a grad student. And so that's why I ended up kind of teaching there after... Um, after uh, I graduated and um, the book was coming out. So in spring of 2010, I have, I have actually the little blurb here. Uh, I found um, it was Humanity 3112, <laughs> the novel, wow. the novel colon infinite jest. Um, so yeah, I, t- I taught it for the first time then, and I think it was pretty much a disaster. Um, as I remember it, it was a disaster, but I, I do have good relations. You know, I have several students, former students from that class who I'm still in touch with. Um, and they have some interesting things to say about it. So I guess it couldn't have been totally worthless. Um, but it was, it was hard. It was, it was, it's a hard sell for art school kids. Um, you know, because, uh, mm. the, the, the art student is, um, interested in a lot of things and, often one of those things is not sitting down and reading an incredibly challenging work of literature. Uh, but I got through it and then I ended up teaching it again once I was at Roosevelt. I guess it was, it might've been 2012, um, a couple years later and taught it again. And that was somehow challenging in a totally different way. And then I taught it, I took, you know, six years off and then I taught it last fall. Um, and the challenges again were just uh, uh, 179 degrees different than they were the first time. So it's, I've had three very different experiences with it. Um, is that a reference to the page count of infinite jest? No, no, that was just one degree less than a total reversal. <laughs> That's all I meant. Oh, yeah. One degree less oh, yeah, than 180. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I wish, I wish I was capable of doing that in the middle of conversation. You're thinking, oh. you're thinking skateboard tricks right now with a, with 180 degree I, rotations. I, I, yeah, I always am. <laughs> just to go back to the Art Institute of Chicago thing, did you cross paths with Adam Levin much there? 
who wrote the instructions. Yeah, well, yeah. No, he's a teacher there. Well, yeah, Levin became uh, a kind of pal of mine um, after... Really? Cool. Yeah, yeah, he's a buddy, and he's he's left Chicago now, which is really Oh, has he? Okay. Yeah. Where is he he's now? now Do you know? in, he's in Florida. Um, okay. And, hmm. yeah, uh, he, yeah, I think he's... he's uh, probably, hopefully, he's wearing like cargo shorts and socks and sandals <laughs> right now. Sure, yeah. yeah. It's Next like seventy is. degrees yeah, in Austin Adam's today. Great. If you want to come to Austin, it's like <laughs> even hotter. It's like seventy-five degrees. Today. Oh yeah. Huh. I've said uh, this like numerous times on the show before, but the instructions is my second favorite novel. You know, after Infinite Jest, like I and the slide. By it. And I haven't read the slide book. yet. I, I just became aware of it recently, so I got to get my hands on your book. Kind well, of. it's funny because I actually, before I met Adam as a person, I remember uh, the instructions being spoken of on the Wallace list just like a mm-hmm. lot. Um, and there sure, was a yeah. whole lot of, um, there was a whole lot of chatter when that book came out. Um, so I did, I kind of made yeah. a point to track him down and meet him. Um, but yeah, we've been friends over mm-hmm. the years and he's, yeah, he's a great cool. guy. He was, he was there. He was at the Art Institute for a while. So mm-hmm. since we're going back to the Art Institute, I got to talk about my former teachers because one of my all-time favorite teachers was Beth Nugent. Oh, and yeah. Beth, Beth went to Art Institute of Chicago and then ended up bringing along some of our other former professors there uh, from Denver uh, for sometimes a year or two and sometimes longer. One was Cole Swenson, who was a big um influence on me and probably one of my all-time favorite teachers she's a poet translator and then also ben ramke i think was there for a year in poetry so yeah. i i if i will put in a plug if you have not read beth nugent's two books they're they're phenomenal uh live girls maybe i've even mentioned on the podcast before i think you have yeah that name sounds um, familiar but it it's phenomenal um so i it's a small world you know i feel like these mfa programs like uh you know, they, they spawn people who go in a million different directions and you get people who are like, oh, I studied with them or I knew them in undergrad or I knew them in this way. Yeah. So I feel like if we talk to enough people, we could probably even find more mutual friends, Kyle. <laughs> yeah, I bet we could. Um, I, I, I will say that I was never in a class of Beth's, um, but I did know her and I was around her quite a bit. Um, in a sort of like semi-social way and she yeah she was i mean she's like a legendary mythical figure she was just as badass she is who showed up in her black leather jacket and sort of like put her boots up on the table and was sort of like all right <laughs> you know let's yep let's that's see. exactly her and it's and it's funny because you know one of the, the sort of the whole model for the art institute which um my colleague is a, a incredibly talented writer named christian tabordo um, and so one of, one of the things that he and I have really tried to do at Roosevelt, um, because it is, it's a young program, um, and we, you know, it's a very small program and we're the only two full-time faculty. So we have a lot of say in how the program works. Um, but one of the things we've really tried to kind of absorb from the Art Institute model is, um, you know, this kind of anti-Iowa approach to workshop, right? Like if, if the <laughs> Iowa model in its kind of most car- cartoon um, it, it, it's most kind of, uh, I don't, I don't know, hyperbolic, uh, model is that it's just this hyper abusive, you know, cult of personality where you've got this, um, monarch standing at the top who's just like doling out terrible insults, you know, speckled with highly imbalanced praise. Um, 
the art institute really tried to undo that in some key ways and and form you know form a workshop that and an entire pedagogy that that really eliminates a lot of that uh sort of hero worship um and i'm incredibly grateful to have learned about teaching i mean i learned a great deal about teaching just from the fact that you know that place has beth uh, there was a woman there when i was mm-hmm. there named janet desaulniers who was w- one of the best teachers one of the best educators i've ever been um you know within 100 miles of and you know other people sarah levine the author of treasure island who um has become a friend and yeah i mean you're right like there is a way that mfa programs do spawn you know they there there's a lot of missed <laughs> kind of connections mm-hmm. but the connections that you know actually are formed end up lasting for a long time well and i i want to say you were very kind enough to um share the syllabus for this particular course that you've been teaching yeah. mm-hmm. is it over now or are you, st- are you still oh yeah it's way over it's it, done no it's way it over. was it, january it's way over i am now six mm-hmm. weeks into a totally different class okay um, but I well, remember it. I when remember you started, it. <laughs> you, when you started in the fall, you, you sent us the, uh, or after you finished it, you sent us the, the syllabus of it. Yeah. And I wanted to just read the course goals for it. Cause I think that it, it kind of fits in with what you're saying there. Um, and part of it is I want to ask you after we read this about the, the students and the type of students who are in the class. Um, so it says the course goals on your syllabus, the subjects of infinite jest are happiness, addiction, entertainment, and the difficulty of connection among human beings for developing writers. The novel provides a buffet of formal stylistic and narrative techniques to study along with an ongoing interrogation of the relationship between speaker and audience writer and reader. In this course, we will engage the considerable challenges of the novel, study its techniques as they relate to our own practices as writers, and treat both its forms and content as catalysts for creative work. Thus, we will become larger, more fully formed writers. That's pretty broad and ambitious. And I love it that the audience there is clearly for other other writers, that you're not teaching it as, um, you know, literary studies per se. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, I mean, so, so the question I the question I have for you is about the students. You know, were they all writers? How did they take to this work uh, as a work of craft? And also, um, you know, how did this fit? Uh, this is a bigger question. Secondary to that is how does that fit in with kind of your university's mission, which is related to you know questions of social justice? Yeah. Uh, Yes. So everyone, everyone who is in the class, this is a grad only level class um, and everyone is an MFA student. Um, So for some students, this was their, yeah, I guess there were quite a few actually, maybe about half of them were in their first semester of MFA. So they really didn't have any idea what they were getting into, Um, (laughs) which is great, which is the best way for this to work. Uh, So yeah, they're, they're all graduate writers. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess I think of that as, you know, that's sort of the breadth of um, that paragraph on the syllabus uh, is both. Uh, it is. I mean, it is like it, it is it is a claim for what I believe we potentially could do in the next 15 weeks. Like if all goes well, here's mm-hmm. what we're going to get into. 
Um, it's like a vision statement. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's ambitious. Yeah. It's it's driven by ambition, but it, it's also sort of like, you know, you put a little bit of the onus on the student at a certain point. You say, look, a lot of this is going, this is a seminar. This isn't, a, this. there will be lectures, but this is not a lecture class, right? Like whatever, mm-hmm. a great deal of the lifting in this class will be on your shoulders. So let's let's get together. And, you know, I mean, I it's funny, I had, I had a, I guess he was a sort of teacher when I was younger who said something along the way. He was teaching Macbeth, Macbeth and he said, look, if you can't teach Macbeth, you should get the hell out of here. Like there's, <laughs> there's enough here for you to be able to, you should be able to teach this. Um, and I feel like, you know, in a certain way, that's, that's the sort of um, the double-edged reality of infinite jest is that, you know, there's enough in there that you could talk forever, right? I mean, if if the anxiety of the fraud professor is how am I going to fill up two and a half hours of class every week, you know, there's no reason. Or a hundred podcast episodes. <laughs> right, yeah, or, yeah, sure. Well, we're almost halfway there, Matt. At the same time, you have to, you know, you have to... Um, you have to make a sort of uh, proud claim over your ability to talk about this stuff in order for it to work. So there, you know, there is some pride in the ethos of that syllabus because there has to be right. Like the, the professor has to project like, I look, this is what we're up to. This is, this is serious business. Let's go. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. And also you're, you're not, you're not just talking about the novel. I mean, when I saw your syllabus, your syllabus is really expecting that these graduate students is going to, they're going to go and read the book on their own and then come to class to discuss some other ancillary material. It looked like every week you had another essay or interview that you would discuss to sort of supplement that discussion. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I mean, I I guess this sort of gets into some some of the territory of, well, why, why is talking about literature um, with aspiring writers so different than talking about literature with um, English majors um, or, you know, professional academics. Um, And and part of that is about like all, all of the stuff, all of the thematic stuff about entertainment and all of the, the questions that Wallace is dealing with in the early essays, you know, conspicuously young and the TV essay, and, you know, mm-hmm. obviously a great deal in the novel itself, Infinite Jest, it, you know, all of the stuff that's about like, what is entertainment? Like, what, what do we want? What are the questions or what are the questions we should be asking about what we're sitting down to watch and how, where is the line between commercial entertainment and art and all of these kind of macro questions um, about consumption, those are the questions that I think, whether they they want to or not, every aspiring writer has to confront. So a, a great deal of the sort of ongoing pedagogy of the class was like, hey, wh- where do you draw the line? Like, wh- what is your relationship to the Mar- you know the extended Marvel mm-hmm. cinematic universe? Um, and you know the great thing <laughs> is is that every week something new would come up. Um, you know, so if, for instance, while I'm teaching this class, uh, the Colin Kaepernick stuff comes up, right? And it's uh, Nike, it, it was during the fall, so Nike had just pledged their support for Colin Kaepernick and had that whole campaign about Colin Kaepernick. And, you know, our question was, okay, let's talk about this. And then, you know, a la everything we've been talking about, 
is this actually a moral decision, right? Like is any decision in capital, can we say that that was an ethical choice on Nike's part or was that some really obviously calculated sort of, um, you know, business acumen? And, you you know, that is infinite jest, right? Yeah. The the new Gillette ads remind me of that question too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That that is infinite jest. Like that's that's the question. Like, is there ethics in hyper advanced capitalism? So you know something would always come up. Um, what's another example? Oh 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 wait yeah if I may, there was there was that moment where uh, the Netflix show uh, that Pat Somerville wrote, Maniac. Maniac. <laughs> Maniac, thank you. Oh, I love Maniac. I forgot to mention Maniac on our best of. So there was yeah. there was a thing that that came out about Maniac, and Netflix basically yeah. said like, you know, we've been sort of co-writing this by way of there's been some feedback from the Netflix algorithm that has made the writers of the show have to ditch certain episodes. So based on Netflix's data mm-hmm. of how the show has been watched or how binge watching works they've made some very serious artistic decisions. Um, So, Hmm. you know, it's just, you can't help but find things in 2019 that fall into these conversations. So yeah, we did the thematic Mm -hmm. stuff. We spent a lot of time kind of, we got a lot of mileage out of the TV essay. I mean, it's, you know, it's, Hmm. and those are questions that writers wonder. I mean, we need to, we need to ask that is what I'm, what do I want to happen to what I'm making? What do I believe in? What do I myself consume? And how do I want people to consume my work? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's just go ahead and get into it too, because there's, you know, huge awareness now of, um, you know, teaching infinite jest as like, well, do you need to really teach another problematic white man? And yeah. like the, the sort of, questions of like what you teach how politicized is that to begin with and mm-hmm. like these like i say your questions of social justice like were were there people going into it who were skeptical or aware of like mary carr stuff like how, how much did you get into like you know here's some problems with the the war dean section etc yeah um so yeah i I'll, I'll sort of preface this by saying that Roosevelt University is a school founded on the principles of social social justice, and its origin story um, is incredibly interesting. Um, in 1945, um, a bunch of professors at a local YMCA college actually walked out in protest of um, some decisions about quotas, uh, and they started Roosevelt University as a kind of um, you know op- alternative to sort of regular practices about um, admissions and exclusion and so on. So it's it's from its kind of origin. It's had this uh, idea of itself and oftentimes practice in practice too of itself um, of always centering a social justice mission. So that's that's sort of the umbrella context. Um, and does it continue to attract students who are interested in that mission? Yes, yes, absolutely. And um, And faculty, I think, you know, perhaps even more importantly, um, who are, mm-hmm. you know, find ways to kind of work it in. Um, and I certainly do too. Like I certainly in my intro creative writing class speak of this as a way, you know, on a basic level, here's a way to understand people, you know, different perspectives than your, your own. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty central. It's, it's certainly not, you know, hammer over the head type stuff, but it's, you know, it's, it's there. It's kind of part of the ethos. 
so in any case, yeah, this this class, um, one of one of my students, there were fourteen in the class. One of them was a former student or is a former student of Mary Carr's. Um, huh. Interesting. The the yeah, she 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 had opinions throughout about you know it, she brought a lot to these conversations. Um, yeah, it, it broke down, I think, in terms of uh, gender, that it was it was about split men and women. Um, and then it was also pretty much split um, between students who identified as white and um, students who identified uh, as um, being black or brown students or um, Mexican students. Um, so it, it was it was a very diverse group of people. Um, many of whom had never heard of David Wallace and only really learned of the problems about David Wallace in the first class when we confronted head on, like, okay, (laughs) here's why people say you shouldn't read this book. Like here is, Mm. you know, the article, the men recommend David Wallace to me. Here is that (laughs) really, really wonderful, um, outline piece about last year's conference um which you know conveniently came out well useful very very useful outline piece um about about the conference uh so we -hmm. got right into i mean that that was it that was the beginning that was the first class here's this here's what we're dealing with what what are your feelings about this what do we do about this how do why should we be reading this how many people want to walk out and no one wanted to walk out i mean that was that was the key um (laughs) what was the class size about Oh, it was 14. Okay. Yeah. yeah so there are 14. No walkouts. That's um, pretty good. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it, it, it was a constant, it was always there. It was sort of hovering um, behind every conversation we had, and it would often poke its head throughout the semester. And I, I, the weird thing, and this is the thing that I really don't know that I can totally explain, the really weird thing is that it ended up, I think, making for a much, 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 better consideration of the work it just it made the class richer to have that stuff out Mm -hmm. there Um, because it it just raised all sorts of questions you know in the same way that the ethical stuff and the theoretical stuff about entertainment and what we consume ask questions of these um, developing artists at the same time it was kind of broader questions about where are we like what does it mean to be alive in 2019 like this Mm -hmm. this is not the world that wallace lived in um, and yeah. why, why is it maybe, what, what do we know that Wallace didn't know? And what are, what are the perspectives and the understandings that we have that he didn't have? And what does that mean about the way the world has changed in the last 20 years? Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And I'm sort of like, my mind is kind of spinning here and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I'm like wondering, you know, what percentage of those students came out of this thinking, uh, you know, this novel is great and I want to read it again or what percentage of them do you think came out of it thinking, wow, this this kind of sucked and like I would rather read something else? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm curious too about like what were like your biggest kind of resistance points throughout the class, if any, from the students? Well, they, they were varied. Um, and, you know, yeah. I liked that they were varied because, you know, I sort of, you know, it, over 15 weeks if you have the same objection and it never really changes, that's going to be a problem, right? Like either mm-hmm. it means that you're so principled in a particular belief, or it means that you're just not super willing to kind of, um, you know, evolve. Uh, <laughs> that one student was, 
really, really, really took issue with the line that Wallace draws between um, commercial entertainment and art. Uh, she hmm. just, you know, went to bat like just every time. Like, just hmm. basically like, that's what well, this is bullshit. Like, how dare he? He seems just to <laughs> just totally discount commercial entertainment. Um, what? And, you know, that led to all sorts of conversations about, well, no, he, w- w- you know, it seems like more what he's doing is saying that there are these two kind of modes. Um, and, you know, any failure, any failure for her to not understand that was really a failure of mine to not super explain it. Right. Um, but she did. She was just incensed. And but again, what that made was it made her speak, you know, every week basically what do, what are you up to what do you believe in why do you think he's wrong like this is a young woman who is writing young adult fiction and she is deeply 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 proud of the work she's doing and should be because it's incredible she's doing incredible work and she would say this is for as many readers as possible i'm writing this for as many people as possible it is as broadly commercial as it could possibly be and she would stand by that and i would say now she stands by that in a firmer way than she did before the class so i think that sort of interrogation for her was really good yeah (laughs) <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to remember all of the. Op- there was a lot of opposition. I mean, there was a, there were a lot of different ways that people were super bummed on parts of the book. You know, I mean, <laughs> the, the the war dean section was just terrible, and it was. But but yeah. it was essentially it was like kind of at this point comical. It was like, what is he up to? Like, what <laughs> what was he thinking? Um, that was sort of the response that I got. And I, frankly, I would much prefer this, du- this dude overreached and didn't get it right. I would much prefer that to, you know, F this, shut down, we're not dealing with it, right? So in a certain way, it allowed us to kind of confront like, okay, what is this guy good at and what is he not good at? And, you know, bring it to that level a little bit. One thing that I'm curious about is that question then of, you know, how, how does it relate to Wallace's legacy mm-hmm, in a way? Mm-hmm. And that our, our keynote, you brought up this thing about the conference. Well, last year at our, our Wallace conference, the keynote was Claire Hayes Brady. Right. And she was really engaging with this Amy Hungerford essay, which was saying, don't even read Infinite Jest. It's a waste right, yeah. of time. And that's Amy, Amy Hungerford's argument is like, I have better things to do. There's more things to read. Fuck it. I'm never going to read that right, book. Right. And it's like... Yeah. Claire Claire's argument in response to that was like, well, that's not really a critical approach. And especially if you <laughs> want to be a literary scholar at this day and age, like you really do need to engage with this book, especially if you're going to go and publish something about it. Uh, right, you can't sure. really write about it if you haven't at least read it. Um, but right. I'm curious, like, how does how does that tension, you know, in your mind get a, like through with Wallace's legacy? Like, does it matter if the book continues to be taught or not? Well, uh, again, I, I cannot speak to really at this level, like I can't speak to the field of Wallace studies, right? I can't speak to um, the kind of bigger question about its, its future um, role in the canon and what people will continue to study. What, what I can say is, I mean, I, I've read the Hungerford essay and I think it's, um, you know, I think it's incredibly performative and I think like a lot of us she's doing what she can to um you know stake a claim to a certain perspective and writing that perspective toward you know the the faint glimmers of fame that are afforded college 
teachers. Um, so, you, you know, I think I, I would wonder how much I, well, whatever. I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, what I will say is that for prospective writers, for anyone who would like to understand the mechanics of how fiction works, um, and beyond that, some of the questions about what narrative art is and, and what it means to consume narrative art, I think it would be criminal to not look at this now. I mean, I, I, think, I think the beauty of this conversation is that nobody has to read anything they don't want to. I think it would be a shame if there were not teachers in the future who continued to look at Infinite Jest with developing writers and say, like, let's see what this guy's up to. Like, what is he doing here in terms of interior and exterior balance? Like, how is it that we are getting thoughts from this character and also um, seeing everything around this character and also having all of this filtered through this voice of an author character um, who we happen to know so much about but can't necessarily say that's Wallace exactly but boy it sure feels like this whole mm -hmm. thing is deliberately mediated for us so what is going on here in terms <laughs> of point of view I think it would just be an incredible shame if aspiring fiction writers did not study that to understand all of these questions about craft I mean it's all there yeah yeah this leads me to ask, want to ask about your final essay mm -hmm, project in mm -hmm. the class, which we talked about in, in the emails, that uh, you basically have commissioned the students to write like a very personal kind of account of what the book has meant to them in mm -hmm. just a really kind of, you know, candid, honest, unvarnished kind of way. Yeah. Um, and you said that a lot of the essays that you got were just like really breathtaking and, and very impactful for you. So I'm curious to hear like, from these aspiring fiction writers, what were some uh, kind of the highlights of, of that? And they also gave a, a presentation to the class, right? Yeah, I mean, I basically, I set it up as, as a kind of commitment, right? That this is, you are standing up and you are speaking. Um, and so the, the assignment page, I, I think, actually takes some of the language from, um, you know, the section where Gately is sort of, one of the sections where Gately is sort of struggling with the, the, the balance between the performance and the truth. And, you know, he's shocked that he got up there and basically shit on AA and is celebrated for it um, as, <laughs> yeah, yeah. as a kind of testament to this, this venue as being some sort of weird utopic kind of truth paradise, right? That, that anything that's <laughs> yeah. bullshit just, just falls away, no matter what version mm -hmm. of bullshit it is. Um, mm -hmm. So that was, that was kind of the idea, like, hey, we're going we're gonna to do this. You're going to stand up and you're going to read. Um, the, the one thing I'll say before I get into that was that the, the writing assignments for this class were um, very open and not exactly demanding. Um, there were five short papers. Um, and one of the prompts was uh, the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, one of the prompts was on winning, right? It was just supposed to be a third, you know, some sort of essay on what it means to win. Um, the third one was... Charlie Sheen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the third one was on the difference between, um, semantically, between I love you and you are loved, um, which I stole, mm. uh, Matt, from the Wallace mm. List discussion yeah, that, I was going to say that's really a, a westward the course of empire right. line. So right. Keep going. Um, and then one of them was a pure craft thing where uh, it was it was about this idea of taking the scene in whole, um, which is partially from Burn Children. You know, the the sort of the daddy comes running in, and before he could do anything, he had taken the scene in whole of what he confronts. 
And then also Gately in the in the you know in the the fight scene, he comes down the stairs and he basically has a view out over this kind of vista of mayhem. Um, and and there's mm-hmm. this really wonderful thing Wallace does where he just switches into this purely visual mode, where it's just here's what he saw, and it's this it's just right. I mean it's a it's a textbook in visual language. Um, so I had them do that with something, um, and then finally uh, their last sort of prompt was can you or can you not remember pain? Um, and so then the final, the final essay was very broad and it basically just said, you know, be as truthful as possible about this experience. And yeah, I mean, they were, mm-hmm. I have a few of them here because I actually have gone back and read them a couple of times since then. Um, cool. They're stunning. I mean, they're, they're absolutely stunning short essays. They're between, you know, two and four pages. Um, I think I capped it. I, I, I think I put a cap around 1500 words. Um, yeah. And they are, you know, they're they're exactly what I would hope. I mean, they're revealing, they're intimate, they're um, confessional, um, but then they're also incredibly proud. And a lot of the students who seem to have the hardest time throughout the semester finding the reading strategies that would allow them to get through this very difficult book ended up saying things at the end, you know, like, for instance, hey, if this guy is able to blather on for thousands of pages, why would I listen to that voice in my head that's constantly telling me to shut up, right? So it was a kind of self-empowerment thing. It was sort of finding mm-hmm. your own voice and finding your confidence in the fact that here's this dude who wrote this giant thing and God, couldn't someone have edited it? So that's, that's the sort of example of, God, they really didn't like this book, but boy, they sure learned from it. Um, you know, other ones were just, I mean, I have a student who wrote a, a, an interpretation um, of the dynamic between Hal and James Incandenza and James Sr. as all being kind mm-hmm. of stand-ins for different ways of reading slash writing um, and how Hal mm-hmm. was cool. incapable of, of really understanding um, Blood Sister One Tough None because he was so interested in irony and hijinks and he couldn't, he couldn't really catch his father's you know, genuine treatment of AA, et cetera, um, and relating to mm-hmm. himself as he was reading the novel. I mean, it was stunning and it ran the gambit. Um, one student was very open about being the child of a drug addict and how she, she mm-hmm. hadn't called her mother in years until after reading the poor Tony scene and she thought about her mother going through withdrawal. And it gave her the reason wow. to reach out and make contact because she found herself so incredibly moved by the poor Tony uh, withdrawal scene that she reached out. Um, so it was a lot of that wow. stuff. I mean, it was it was moving. I was it was I was pretty wrecked by the end of it. And I don't you know I don't love to cry in front of a class, but if you're going to do it, you know, week fifteen <laughs> is probably the week to do it. So yeah, it was. Oh yeah, I was totally. moved. I was moved. Wow, amazing! I love that uh, th- that scene where Gately comes out, and you know, there's a huge. Um, that's kind of the apex of the book, right? Like this right. is kind of the the climax of the actual, you know, plot for that storyline. I'll say that, um, and it's not what I expected. You know, what you were saying about the interior versus the exterior point of view. The first thing that came to mind for me was um, the wraith. And the, mm-hmm. the fact that if you can put a ghost in the book, it's like, well, the ghost can sort of float around from place to place and give you this point of view and this much mm-hmm. more complex. And, and then this book, 
And that's one of those things, you know, I'm, I was always really curious when I did take like a craft writing class that Mm -hmm. they would tell you some tips. That's like, Oh, if you don't want to just describe your character's face, have them look in the mirror and describe their own face. (laughs) You know, it's like if you don't want to have uh, a person who all of a sudden just switches to third person and describes the scene, you know, maybe you have a friend who's there and is relaying it to a blind character or something. Great. All these kind of tips that you can get in there. I was going to ask if you had... uh, The other thing it made me think of is if you had seen this thing called Growing Sentences with David Foster Wallace that... Kotke republished on his site years ago. We'll, we'll put a link to it in the show notes, but it, it's it's really great in that it shows <clears throat> it takes like a, probably a 200 word sentence from the book and sort of reverse engineers the way that Wallace might have written it. Oh, that's great. Um, that's and great. and that, that kind of that kind of stuff is by a guy named James Tanner from the listserv and and Jason Kotke put it on his site. And it just says, like, you know, you start with an idea, you start stringing together ideas, you make it a compound sentence, you add a bunch of clauses, uh, <laughs> and, and, right. you know, then you're adding the modifiers, you're adding, uh, you know, parallelization, you're adding adjectival phrases and elaborating, right. and then and then you're putting this sort of special Wallace shine on the actual language. Um, and so that, that kind of stuff is, makes me think exactly what you're describing throughout the course of the book. Other thing I wanted to ask you about is the way that you structured the class. I really liked how you sort of used our previous concavity guest, Greg Carlisle's structure yeah, to break right. it into sort of digestible chunks. Um, you know, was that a relatively new thing for you for this time or had you done that in the past? No, you know, I had done that in the past, but the, the thing that was so particularly useful about it again in this class was we were incredibly overt about the sort of strategy of like, okay, so we know a novel is a cumulative work of art, right? Like unlike most other works of art, it, the experience of a novel changes as you go through it, right? So where you are mm-hmm. in page, the experience you're having reading page 850 is a radically different experience. And part of that is then a radically different experience than the beginning of the book. And part of that is about, well, look, it's because you know more, right? It's because just on an epistemological level, you have more access to the capital S story. Part of it is Uh familiarity with the world, right? Like you have this kind of built in geography of where you are. Part of it is plot, right? That plot creates these energies and these questions. And as you move through and kind of answer those questions, you find yourself in a different balance of wondering versus um, being certain. And you have, you know, it's not quite epistemology. There's also something else going on in terms of the energy and the sort of, um, you know, the word that, uh, that, that you use in the kind of technical language of, um, fiction craft is profluence, right? That there's this sort of force that's driving you onward. So all that stuff is kind of based on the fact that this is a very long book and it's different in week one um, than in week 15. The great thing about Carlisle's book, I mean, in addition to just being incredibly like thorough in making sure you you understand all that's at play in the pages you've just read, the other thing it does is it creates really great markers for asking of the aspiring fiction writer, okay, like what kind of introduction to a novel is this? 
Like why, why would you, knowing that your reader is setting off on what's going to be a very long process, why would you give them this for the first 95 pages? What, what is it about these 95 pages that signals, okay, this is our, this is our introduction? Um, and kind of to get back to that craft question, Matt, like one of the things that's incredible that I realized this time through is that Wallace does this thing in those first chapters that he writes paragraph. And I, I think the page I looked at explicitly for this is something around page like 35, um, where I took some of those chapters. I said, like, are those those paragraphs? And I said, look. These paragraphs are incredibly long. You don't know who's speaking. You don't know why you're here suddenly, right? I mean, the, all of these are, are voices coming at you. You don't know who these characters are at the outset, but look what he's done. The title or the, the topic sentence of this paragraph is doing exactly like what we're told in intro comp title, you know, topic sentences of a paragraph yep. should do. It's introducing what's to come. And the last sentence of this paragraph is summarizing what the paragraph just said. Like he is incredibly <laughs> deliberate in those early chapters of, you know, basically tempting the reader onward by giving them paragraphs that, you know, you can kind of skim. Um, and yeah, that's, 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 that's just stunning that's so to great. Me. I think I just read uh, the other day in the the David Lipsky book. I was going back and reading Lipsky is just interrogating him, and this is although of course you end up becoming yourself. And he's saying, you know, what were you trying to do to the reader at the beginning? Mm -hmm. And Wallace says something like, uh, you know, he intentionally wanted to make the reader feel smarter, and I feel like he succeeded in this, and that not that. Not that other books haven't, like there are other books that uh, when you read them, especially if you put some study into the book, you feel like you closed some gaps that were not there before mm -hmm. and that, you know, you you are maybe even a smarter person for having read the book. Yeah. Um, there are other books that I feel are super freaking opaque. Yeah. And that even if you comprehend what the writer is trying to do, it makes you feel dumber. Yeah. And and I feel like the mix is exactly what you're talking about between giving the reader enough information to keep them going. Maybe that's this profluence term, which I honestly did not know before. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, but maybe there you that's, go, getting smarter maybe that's something very subtle with each each page and you know uh, infinite just is very section based novel right like there's a five page section then like a 50 page section right. and like i wonder if you talk about it in those kind of chunks as well well we did you know so a lot of and i kind of want to talk about this also because a lot of a lot of excuse me a lot of people hear the word craft and it sounds just, uh I don't know. It's not a word I love, um, but I think it's an important distinction, right? To say that you're, you're, you're teaching a novel based on craft is basically just to say we are foregrounding the technical decisions that went into the composition of this novel, right? Above whatever else, whatever else we're doing, talking about the ideas of the novel, talking about questions of authorship, talking about questions of, uh, you know, power dynamics and racial dynamics within the publishing industry in the 1990s, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the things we're talking about. What we are mainly doing is looking at the compositional choices that went into this novel. So, you know, when, when we talk about length of chapter, we're talking about a compositional de decision, right? The Wardeen chapter 
for all that it is and for all that, you know, the, the generous readings I've seen on it have been like, well, look, this is Hamlet too, right? Like there's a microcosm of Hamlet in here and it's fractal, etc. Whatever else it is, it's fucking short. And that's mm-hmm. good. Um, and so, you know, it's... <laughs> When we talk about craft, we're talking about, so one of the things we talk about a lot was time management, right? I mean, because this is, you know, all fiction is time. All narrative art is the, the art of time management. It's, it's deciding when to summarize and when to slow down and show a reader what's happening. Put characters in a space and make it a scene. Um, and in Wallace, there are some incredible, incredible choices where he'll have a scene ongoing and he'll sort of just use the container of a scene, whether it's AA, whether it's Hal's head, um, and he'll, he'll use that container to do all this other work. And so when we talk about craft, we say, okay, wh- why structure this first AA meeting this way, right? The, the one that's Gately, it's Joel's first meeting. Like, look at all the decisions mm-hmm. that went into the way that he shaped this chapter. Why do it this way? What are the techniques at play? And once you start doing that, then even the, even the readers, even the students who are struggling through reading the book, if you can say, let's look at these five pages and notice what is going on and what techniques he's using and what sort of choices he's making, then those students are involved. And suddenly we're all talking about th- this incredibly difficult work as if it's manageable, as if, oh, I can do that. Oh, I see what he's doing mm-hmm. here. That's that's a choice I make all the time. This is a narrative pattern I could myself appropriate and follow, or have some version of. And that's that's it. And I, and again, that you know the the stuff about you know the tricks of having someone else describe a character's face or having a character look in the mirror. That is a lot of what people think of when they think of craft, like tricks and um, you know little little ways around problems. But in fact, what it is is what, why these choices? Why this? Why, why have him drive the car and hit the cup that skitters off and, you know, clangs against the door that gives us the scene with the brothers, you know, in, in their little shop? Like, why structure it that way? Um, and man, I got to tell you, it's, it's incredibly rad to watch the conversations happen. You know, that, that, uh, that leads me into asking you about one of those assignments that you gave the mm-hmm. students, uh, which I'm curious about is, can you remember pain? Yeah. You said that, like, what, what do you mean there? Do you mean actually remember pain? Do you remember narratively? Do you remember, is it, is it philosophical question? What, what is that about? Well, it, it seems important <laughs> to me. And, and, you know, this is a Wallace thing also, right? These are the, these are the sort of big questions that, which essay? It's the uh, Frank. Uh, the is it Joseph Frank Dostoevsky? Dostoevsky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Where yeah. you know he peppers that essay with the kind of questions that he says literature has a responsibility to ask, but no longer asks. Right? Where um, here, here, here are the big issues that we should be getting at, but we tend to not anymore. So, what you know, one of those lines of those questions is if. You know, it sure seems like a lot of my life is based on making decisions to minimize pain and maximize uh, pleasure. Um, and he kind of goes on his, you know, the the danger of self consciousness and recognizing that a decision you're making that you think is good that brings you pleasure is it really still a good decision because it's ultimately a selfish decision and so on. Um, 
so that kind of got us talking about pain. And then this also, this prompt came late in the novel when Gately is, of course, laid out and just, just suffering from just un, unbearable pain in his shoulder. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's sort of however the students wanted to interpret it. I mean, it seems to me that for all the work we do to go about minimizing pain in our lives, the actual sensation of pain is one that is exceptionally fleeting and, and short-lived. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we recall after pain, and this kind of maybe gets us into the skateboarding stuff, what we recall after pain is you know the <laughs> yeah. stuff we missed out on or the time we had to spend recovering from it. What we don't remember is the pain itself. Um, you know, it's hard. It's hard to remember what pain feels like. You can remember the inconvenience of it. You can remember the sorrow that it caused in your life or the loneliness that it, it created for you. But physical pain, you can't really remember your way back into. Uh, so this was kind of an antagonistic question that got them, you know, some of them totally disagree with that. Um, and some of them wonderfully wrote about, well, no, like that's what trauma is and wrote, you know, beautifully about trauma. Uh, so yeah, it was, it, that, that's sort of, that's sort of the, the explanation of that one. Wow. That, cool. I mean, that's really great. And it makes me think a little bit about like Walt Wallace wrote about psychic pain mm-hmm. and the pain of depression. And that's sort of like the depressed person was in constant pain and this sort of never ending pain. Um, that, every that cell is, in their body screaming at the top of its lungs, like every all trillions of cells or whatever that we described. Right. It. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's much different than like what Gately is going through. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I find that very, very interesting as a, a, a writing prompt um, because I feel like the novel is not often thought of that way, even though I think it handles mental illness um, very well. It gets it gets put in a lot of different boxes, I guess. Um, so I, I want to get, I can't believe we've made it this far into an interview with Kyle Beachy and not talked about skateboarding. So <laughs> let's just go for like another yeah, hour about <laughs> skateboarding. Uh, so for those of you who are not familiar with, uh, Kyle's work on skateboarding, it is, uh, vast and I would say, uh, incredibly well done. And it's clearly like one of your main passions in life am i mischaracterizing no this? no no, no. Like, i think it, i think it, it yeah. is i mean i would say that it's sort of a reluctant subject matter in terms of writing um but it you know once i started writing about it i've i've found that i i can't stop in certain ways and it's the only writing i do <laughs> that is in any way easy or pleasurable um whereas you know writing fiction i find incredibly just un, unbearably difficult um, but writing, <laughs> writing about skateboarding, I find to not only be, you know, something I, I, I have a certain proficiency at, but also it's something I enjoy doing. And so I, if I, if I enjoy mm-hmm. writing anything now, I cling, I just leap to, on it and cling to it and never let it go. So yeah, I, I, there's a lot. So you, so you've managed to wed, uh, your passion for Wallace and skateboarding in an article you wrote called the deep seams, mm-hmm. a search for fun in David Foster Wallace's Peoria that came out in the Chicago and uh, lit up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I read this last Sunday and had a blast reading it because the way you capture stuff about skateboarding is amazing. And it's kind of like, uh, um, like auto critical, you know, where you're bringing in like critical theory stuff 
in relation to your experience and you've got some really fun anecdotes about like showing up here asking cops where the skate park was which for any skateboarder uh who's grown up with like an anarchic sense of authority is hilarious you know and like the ways that you describe your elbows and your knees and the scar tissue i just was like crying laughing because my elbows are disgusting uh as a result of having been a skateboarder for like most of my life um I haven't done it very much in the last like, Wait, five years. I, I sort of hate to interrupt right now, but have have you made clear to all of the podcast listeners that you're you're in fact, and we could use past tense here if if it makes you more comfortable. You were very very <laughs> good at skateboarding. Like, do people know that? I mean, you you're you're. I don't a ripper. think that's you're, ever come you up. You were a full on like you were a shop sponsored level ripper. Yeah, I, uh, I've I've banned Dave from talking about anything related to Netrunner or skateboarding on the show. It's part of his contract. Sorry. Yeah, I can only talk about my one super obsessive interest in walls and literature, and none of my other super obsessive interests. <laughs> but yeah, I don't I don't think skateboarding's ever come up. Uh, well, I th- I thank you for reading it. Yeah, it was great. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes for cool. sure, and people should check that out if they want. Uh, if they are skateboarders, if they want a, kind of an insight into what it's like into that psychological world um which even though i haven't skated much in the last five years because i sort of hit this point where i I broke my elbow doing something that was really basic for me and i was really like mad and bummed about that that it wasn't something more um uh i don't know epic in in scope that had a better story to it like this is how i broke my elbow kind of Mm -hmm. thing um i still like inhabit the mind of a skateboarder in in a lot of ways like the way that i look at architecture and you know city infrastructure and thing like that like i'm always thinking about skate spots and if i'm walking by a table i always will do like a crooked grind on the edge of it with my fingers totally. you know or a blunt nose blunt slide or things like that like I, i'm still i think about it all the time still um so your your piece gives a good insight into into that that mindset that that world which is great but yeah i i i used to skate a lot i was yeah i was sponsored by a, a local shop in Kelowna and had a part in a video that they put out and stuff um is is like yeah a huge part of my life from eighth grade till you know my early 30s um and in a lot of ways still is i guess i'm pretty out of the loop out of the loop and you probably grew up reading skateboard magazines which were were full of of a very um i mean there were and this is not to um degrade the the few very talented writers who were working at the time when I was kind of coming up and reading those magazines, um, you know, that mm. generally speaking, skateboarding has been an, an not only uncritic, uncritically approached, but also like generally there hasn't been much thoughtful approach to it. Right. Like mm-hmm. the, the sort of more academic flowering of yeah. skateboarding came, you know, late nineties um, and really has taken off in the last kind of 10 years. Um, and so some of the mm-hmm. originators, there's a guy named Ian Borden um, from England, a woman named Becky Beal, and then there's a pro skateboarder named Ocean Howell who wrote some incredible stuff uh, once he stopped being a pro skater and started studying mm-hmm. urban planning. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, the, the writing has, wasn't, ever, it wasn't ever, you know, the point of the magazine the point of the magazine was to look at the pictures oh, yeah. and you know cut them out and put them yeah. on your bedroom wall 
Um, oh yeah like there was not an inch of actual wall space in my bedroom as a teenager that wasn't covered in in like you know ads from trans world or thrasher or whatever. totally um so yeah i think you know i think that in 2012 i guess um you know when i wrote a thing that was halfway thoughtful about um a particular video part that had come out i think it you know it filled a gap where there wasn't a lot of work doing similar stuff um, and I think it, you know, I have what part, to, what part was that about? It was about Nigel Houston's, um, rise oh, okay. and shine part, which was, he's pretty which good. Was one of these pay for pay for view single parts back when they would, they would charge for a single part. Um, okay. yeah. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that I, I, I got pretty lucky at, you know, being, um, a, 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 getting to a point in my sort of professional and literary life where I had the sort of um, free time to think, okay, well, what if I, what if I applied some of this stuff to this thing that I love doing all the time? Um, And the other thing was that, Mm -hmm. you know, I was trying to write a novel about skateboarding that was getting Mm -hmm. very, very, very pedantic and didactic um, due to the fact (laughs) that I had all these thoughts. So writing these essays gave me a real sort of way to kind of, you know, kind of clear out the system a little bit and stop myself from, trying to make everything in the novel, um, you know, somehow an essay or somehow insightful. Like it, it sort of freed me up yeah. to see, see the novel as a story rather than an opportunity to write thoughtfully about skateboarding. Yeah. That's interesting what you say about the, the idea of like, um, you know, there's a lot, not a lot of like really maybe articulate scholarly writing on skateboarding because there's kind of this subculture in a lot of skateboarders that I knew that was kind of like, you know, wastoid stoner, like kind of ambitionless, mm-hmm. um, you know, <laughs> I guess approach to, to living in the world. And then there was kind of like a smaller group of people I knew within skateboarding who, you know, did pursue like post-secondary, post-secondary education, mm-hmm. like humanities, and, you know, started to think thoughtfully about this community that we were part of and what that essentially means sociologically and things like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess, I guess because of that, it, le- it left some space for people like you to come along and, and give some valuable, uh, thoughtful academic insights into that world. I think there, yeah, I think when I was growing up there, you know, I, I ran with what was a pretty, you know, above, above board skater crew, right? Like there were the, there were the mm-hmm. bad kids in St. Louis, Missouri. Yeah. And then there were, we were like this sort of pretty okay kids. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> what I will say is that in the, you know, truly in the last you know, 10, 10, 15 years, the quality of attention that is being paid skateboarding is just outrageous. Like the, the, there are mm-hmm. writers now um, coming at it from the urban planning side, coming at it from gen- right. yeah. gender That's inclusion cool. side, coming at it from, mm-hmm. you know, essentially queer theory and saying like, look, there's, there's, mm-hmm. there's some elements of skateboarding that radically align um, with, queer Mm. culture and the goals of um, criticism coming from that side. And so there, all of that stuff that you grew up not even imagining could be a thing is now a thing Mm. and is now part of young skateboarders experience of skateboarding. And that to me is just mind boggling. I mean, you know, Mm. the, the incredible thing about skateboarding is that it was, you know, it was basically invented in the 1950s. And, and since then Mm. it, 
really has just nobody has known what it's going to be and it's expired it's we thought it was extinct for a while and it came back and now it's just this totally yeah. unbelievable global phenomenon that i don't think anyone in 1991 would have ever predicted in their wildest dreams so it's it's a weird mm. thing it's this weird thing we kind of accidentally created that turned into a multi-billion dollar industry and you know probably won't be that way yeah. forever for better or worse right, right. yeah right. For sure right yeah when you were talking about the um, the kind of more unsavory characters, it made me think of a book because that's the type of person I nice. am. Nice, <laughs> yeah, which say is that. A, a book from uh, Crime Think. Anyone heard of Crime Think? Just like a uh, anarchist uh, collective publishing company. No, I don't know. Uh, and Maybe they not. they are they published a book called evasion which is uh an anonymous memoir by like a sort of gutter punk character who's like <laughs> a, a hobo from the mid 90s and this kid just travels around dumpster diving uh skateboarding you know uh homeless pretty much but loves it like that's his life yeah and it's anonymous and it's fantastic. I love this book and I recommend it all the time. If you haven't read it, Evasion, you can get it from Crime Think. It's anonymous. Cool. Um, awesome. But yeah, no, there's I this, there's this, here. there's this code amongst gutter punks in, in the book that he talks about that. Um, one thing you don't do is like ask about someone's past. Hmm. Like, especially for someone who is living that lifestyle where they're traveling around, let's say they're just skateboarding, they're dumpster diving, they're sleeping in the park at night. You don't get to know that kid by talking to them about what led them to that point. Like they live so in the now. Hmm. And uh, my other skill is relating everything back to David Foster Wallace, which I'll do <laughs> now, uh, which is that there's a similar sort of ethos in um, – AA and that they really don't give a shit about like what your past was. Like if you were a hedge fund manager or if you were homeless, but like if you're in recovery there, you have to live in kind of the now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think while you were talking, I was like, Oh, what's the great American skateboarding novel? Like maybe it's the slide, right? Maybe it's uh, uh, anything Kyle Beachy writes. But I, I don't know what it is, but I think maybe the problem there is that like these um, the ethos of it is like you live in the present, you know, and it's just something that's like, very difficult to be reflective about. I think that's super interesting. I think that's that's real interesting. I will say that the thing that I've tried to do. So I have a novel right now that's out on submission um, and it's a skateboarding novel. And the thing that I, I tried to do and to um, whether I succeeded even remotely is is up to theoretical readers someday when it gets published but the thing i will say that i find super interesting and i think that's really interesting um the thing that got me is the sort of idea of movement right i mean what what skateboarding does is create these incredibly non-linear paths um and it's repetitive right i mean what what a skate what a crew of skaters Mm -hmm. will do is show up um at a place and they will they will essentially harvest that place for as long as they can before they are asked <laughs> to leave. Um, and, you know, in harvesting, in farming that place, what they do is they just kind of repeat these lines back and forth, um, attempting and failing and attempting and attempting and attempting and failing and failing and failing. Um, and so one of the, one yeah, of the things of that I really hoped to do was write 
find some sort of narrative form that in any way mimics that sort of movement. So it's not linear. It's, it's, it's circuitous. It's cyclical. It's redundant by design. It's repetitive. It creates echoes. Um, and again, I have no idea if I did it, but it, that sort of question, and this ties back into that, that question of craft, like wh- what is the shape that you want your book to take? And the Sierpinski gasket for all that it freaked my students out when I put it up on the board and it was like the, you know, it was like the animated one. So you're zooming in constantly. It's that super nauseating one where you zoom in and it reveals itself. Um, You know, that's an, that's a very useful image and it's a very useful way to understand the shape of that book. Um, And, you know, getting a student to think about the shape, draw your story, draw your novel. What does it look like? Um, these are, you know, these are the questions that you can ask of a developing writer that I don't think you can ask exactly of a traditional literary and analytic student. Right. Yeah. Mm, that's fascinating. And I'm, I've got like a few more questions that I want to hit you sure. with before we, uh, wrap up. Um, <clears throat> one is, you know, thinking about what you just said and, uh, about the, the the fiction that you have out there right now and then going back to whenever you're first teaching infinite jest and and really learning how to be a teacher um my question for you is like who inspires you now and who do you look up to now you know with being kind of further down the road in life yeah um so my 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 sort of north star uh was was never Wallace because Wallace I always found just totally paralyzing, right? Like I, reading Wallace didn't make <laughs> me want to put the book down and run to the computer. Um, but reading DeLillo always always has. Like reading mm. DeLillo makes mm. makes me believe in um, my capacity to maybe you know chip a tiny piece off of it and do something with it. Uh, so DeLillo mm. has always been sort of the author that I uh, have steered by. Um, and I think that's sort of true now, but in a sort of different way. I made the I I, I got into trouble by starting to read Laszlo Krasnohorkai, um, the Hungarian mm-hmm. author, uh, and, and particularly because I've been so interested in stasis, um, and I've been so interested in um, you know smaller and smaller circles or closed loops. Um, and you know, if you've read any Krasnohorkai, you know that his sentences can go on forever. Um, you know that in a lot of those stories, there's a lot of waiting. Um, there's a lot of kind of watching and trying to find subtle cues and very small sort of indications that may or may not be there. Um, you know, finding meaning in a world that is, you know, fairly camouflaged in terms of its meaning. Um, and I think the problem there was I started, I started thinking, uh, that I might be able to do some of that. And that's, that's a terrible thing. Um, and I, I think it's just, it led me down a path that I probably shouldn't have gone on as a writer. Um, so what I've tried, you know, this is all by way of saying that the stuff that I'm sort of reading now, um, is stuff that, that moves a little bit faster. Now I say that, and like the book that I'm actually actively reading right now is to the lighthouse by Virginia Woolf, which is a novel that of course doesn't go anywhere. Um, so I don't know, you know, I, 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 I teach a, a non-realistic fiction class and I, you know, that gives me a chance to read a lot of things that I'm curious about. And so, 
you know, my sort of guilty mm. pleasures there are like China Mieville and uh, Jeff Vandermeer and those sorts of books. Um, Matt, I wanted to talk to you about Stephen Florida um, because we had we had, oh, we had yeah. Habash um, mm. out here. Uh, he, it's an he incredible read book with for us. Yeah, I mean, um, so yeah, I don't I don't know who who else. Oh, well, and you and I have talked a lot about Bolaño in the yeah. past. You know, you and you and I have talked about him. Um, and I'm not saying so much as an inspiration. When I was asking that question, I was really thinking also about um, teachers yeah. and, you know, from, from a kind of academic perspective, you know, who do you, uh, who do you want to be? And, you know, I, I guess I'm sort of obsessed with this question all the time lately. Mm-hmm. And so I'm asking other people like, even looking back in the past, like were there other teachers who were like, damn, the, the people really, you know, 20 years ago, 30, 40, 50 years ago knew what they were doing. What, you know, what do you turn to? I think that's really interesting. I think that's a really hard question to answer, mainly because, you know, when I was kind of a developing young person, I wasn't taking any fiction classes. You know, I mean, the, the classes mm-hmm. that were most meaningful to me were my really weird, like Wittgenstein tutorial where it was me <laughs> and one much smarter student, my friend Jora, who got his PhD and is now faculty at Stanford, you know, he went on and did the thing. And wow. I was sort of just the one in the class who was like, what the fuck is all this? Um, so, you know, I think, I think it's more just that like what I, what I think I model myself on right now is the, the value of that feeling of being, um, a really kind of strategic uh, feeling of, of struggle, right? Like, I think that's it. Mm-hmm. I think the thing that I'm most grateful for when I, whenever I was a student were the things that were just at least, at least beyond my reach and maybe beyond my scope. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. And so I guess for me, I, I kind of am modeling myself after that, that please trust me students that there is a value to the nature of the struggle that you're going through please trust that i wouldn't be doing this if i didn't believe that at at the far end of this you're going to come out of it as a better writer um and i think that's that's important but but you know i can't i can't attribute that to any one teacher i think that's just that's just sort of no that that's that's a great answer kyle you can stop right there good (laughs) good um uh, and and I will I will village, follow right? the I have a follow up question that I want to get to which is, um, <clears throat> you know you're one of those people who I really value for uh, book recommendations because I feel like you're extremely well read, and I want you to recommend some books to us and really like where's your head at right now like what what books are on your list to read what have you read in the past I don't know five six months that you think you still think about or you want to go back and reread like hit us with some other recommendations all right you're you're killing me right now and i'll tell you why it's because it in the semester i can't read anything right in this during the semester oh, yeah. i can't read Fair anything enough. that yeah. i that i'm not teaching two years um i i will say that i really enjoyed uh lydia yuknovich's on the ba- on the small backs of children um i think amelia gray's novel uh which i read when it first came out um and, and, you know, I, Amelia is a friend of mine and I read it and I like was sort of marveled at it, but I don't think that I read it right. And I'm really looking forward to going back and reading that. Um, 
She's a former Austinite. Wrote an episode of Maniac, by the way. You mentioned that. Earlier. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, Amelia's incredible. Um, I'm reading a lot of translation. Uh, I can't wait to read this new Valeria Luiselli novel that's sitting on my shelf. I have it. Yeah, it, it's I huge. It. I, I didn't expect yeah, it to be it's huge. huge. It's huge. Because <laughs> um, all of her other bo- all of her other books are like 250 pages. Right, 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 right. And all of her other books are incredible. Um, God, see, this is it. This is it. I and 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 I will say this also, Matt. I don't think I'm very well read. That's the other thing. I don't feel well read, and that dude, that's bad. No, it's like totally I, I feel like I'm reasonably well read until I talk to Matt, and then I think I just feel pathetic. <sighs> no, no, no. Every t- every time I ask Kyle for stuff, he's read stuff that I've never read, <sighs> uh, and he's got tons of recommendations. Don't don't let this facade. <laughs> I I am very very fortunate to have enough friends um, and connections to people who work in various degrees in independent literature. So I, I am often made privy to like, hey, this is going to be the book that leaps out. Like, you, the yeah, like this yeah. is going to be the thing that people will read. Um, so, you know, for me, I, you know, I'm I, I've been fanning out on Dorothy Norris, the Danish writer. Um, and, you know, she has stuff on Grey Wolf. She had a short story collection called Karate Chop. Um, and then she she mm-hmm. had uh, a novel called Mirror Shoulder Signal, and it's about a woman learning how to drive in Copenhagen. I mean, it's an incredible <laughs> lyrical. I have not read it. Very very a bike funny, or a car. Very funny novel. Um, hmm. Yes, I do. I do like the Danish writer Naja Marie Eit, uh-huh. uh, Aidt, and she has she's published by Open Letter. She's also phenomenal maybe i've even talked about her on the podcast before she has a book called rock paper scissors it sounds like right up right up my alley did you read julian herbert's uh tomb song nope nope uh that came out that was on gray wolf um it's translated by christina mcsweeney who's done you know a lot of great translations yeah um it's i think we've just hit a first on our show here kyle what's that you you said a book that Matt's never heard <laughs> of, so did it. Want to congratulate no, what you? What I'm saying that's why I value Kyle. Like, you in the mail. I am standing in for the listener here, and the one reason why people like listening to our show <laughs> is that they discover new stuff. Yeah. And so, like, I am trying to get one of the most prolific readers who I know to give us some some titles. So that Julian Herbert, you yeah, said tomb song. What's the title? Tomb song. Yeah. So. And have you read, I mean, have you read my colleagues books? Have you read Tuflahoma? The most, no, it's the most no. mind boggling work of, uh, incredibly endearing, um, ev- semi evangelical religious allegory, <laughs> um, batshit <laughs> crazy, fabulous. Uh, yeah, you should read it. Tuflahoma. Um, it, Want, See, you're, you're welcome, listeners. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and See, we're all discovering new stuff right that, now. And, that, and I will, yeah, I will I've also heard of like none of plug Res- Rescue Press, the press that put that book out. Um, they're, I mean, they're, they're as good as anyone at finding voices that no one else will publish and making you feel like what the fuck is wrong with the world that this mm. book hasn't existed <laughs> before now. Um mm. Cool. Yeah. Um, any kind of fi- final thoughts, Kyle? Anything we haven't touched on yet that you definitely wanted to on this episode? Um, I mean, I would, I would, I would say again, just that 
I, I think that we are going to discover that the, the value of teaching the problematic uh, is partially about um, discussing what, what it means to be problematic. And I think that if we shy away mm -hmm. from reading texts that demand nuanced conversations, we might lose the ability to have those nuanced conversations. Mm. Well said. Uh, th thanks, Kyle, for being on the show. Really appreciate this. I do have other questions, but at this point, it would be uh, starting over at the beginning. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm reluctant to do that. Uh, we don't talk about this often on the show, but we record late at night. And so um, some people start to get tired around later <laughs> in the night. So I, I don't want to go back. And, and uh, I do have some other questions, but I will save them for... Uh, maybe a, a follow-up conversation down the road. I'd love to have you back on yeah. the show. This has really been fantastic. Yeah, that'd be uh, good. I, I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, Dave, I know we have some like housekeeping items we need to, to get to before we uh, wrap up this episode. Yeah, just a few. Uh, lastly, Kyle, I just want to commend you on your use of the word rad <laughs> throughout this conversation. I noticed at least two instances <laughs> And I say that specifically because I've had uh, listener, uses the word listeners the listeners comment specifically to me about how I use this word, and they like don't know anybody else in their life who uses that uh. word. And one of one of our listeners uh, a year and a half ago to conference gave me a pin that says "Stay Rad" on it. Um, as Becky, so <laughs> Becky, there's at least one other uh, Wallace fan out there who uses that in their common vernacular, and maybe I guess Kyle, it's possible that's because we're both skateboarders. Maybe, maybe it could it could come out of that subculture. Another thing I've learned from Dave Laird is that you can end any text with just tacking on "ha ha" at the end. <laughs> like, I, comma, I will give you comma, all permission ha, ha. to just steal that. You can just throw it at the end. We're I do like, use yeah, that, that a lot great. in text. Ha, ha, yeah. You can just throw it on. It's Dave yeah. Laird one hundred and one. Or three crying face emojis for like, ha, ha, ha. I use that a lot too. Um, yeah, cool. So Kyle, where can people, well, actually I know where people can, can find out more, get in touch with you uh, on your social media things. You are at Kyle Beachy on Twitter. Uh, you have a website, kylebeachy.com, and we'll link to all this stuff that uh, has a lot of stuff about your novel. I think that's a really oh, good Oh, yeah, it's super, super defunct. Yeah, is it? Um, Defunct. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's got stuff about your novel and and your other your other writing and stuff. So that's it's got stuff. Yeah. The, you know, I would I'd be happy to share my Tumblr page. Um, just because I believe yeah, that's in the archaic, most fun thing. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. The most fun thing. The most fun thing. Com. Dot com. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like largely about skateboarding. I was looking yeah, at. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Skateboarding is really the most fun thing. If you if you can get By into far. it, skateboarding is kind of a lot like Infinite Jest in a way, right? Like it's frustrating at first; it takes you a really long time to get into it. But once you like land a kickflip after like three months of trying, then you're kind of hooked, mm -hmm. and then you just start really diving in from there. That's it. I guess it's got a kind of immersive quality like that. Um, any anywhere else that uh, people can check your stuff out, Kyle? Oh no, that's mainly. I mean, you know, you could you could that's Google me. Stuff. Cool. Yeah, cool. <laughs> totally. Um, for us, Matt, people can, you know, we say this every time, people can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Patreon. We're at Concavity Show most places. And if you want to get in touch with us via email, we're at Concavity Show at gmail.com. Uh, we want to mention that in the last episode, episode 44, we offered a contest 
which was to see if you could guess what song Matt Booker put on the playlist that we put out in association with the episode. And I'm a little bit disappointed by this map. We only got two entries. Oh. Well, me and me and music, it's just not a huge draw. You know? <laughs> so I guess our listeners are, are much more like you than they are me in that they just couldn't really care less to, to I don't know, to check well, out we did We did have a couple. I want to give them credit for the people who <laughs> yeah, did, did listen did. to every song and analyze the shit out uh, of them. Uh-huh. Um, uh, we had Corey Baldoff gave an entry. She guessed Beach House, song by Beach House. Uh, good guess, Corey, but not correct. Uh, we did have a winner, though. It was Chris Ayers. He, he deduced through a post that I put on Facebook. I always do like a top 10 albums of the year on Facebook. And he deduced from that and several other things that we talked about on the show that uh, it was the song by... Um, Jason Isbell. Yeah, Jason Isbell. That's right. Uh, that if mine. Yeah, that was Matt's Matt's other pick. So um, we were going to send out like uh, a journal and uh, some DFW Society pens and stickers to the winner of this. But Chris, I think, is, you know, one of the first subscribers to all of that. So we're going to have to He designed the, the He also designed logo. the logo. Yeah. So, so we're a bit up the so creek, Chris, in terms of what we send you as a prize. But uh, we're going to try and get creative and uh, and send you something cool, at least, that you hopefully don't have. So... Congratulations to Chris, uh, who is our guest on episode five, I believe. And also we heard from him on the conference episode way back. Well done, Chris. And actually, Chris Chris messaged me recently. He's going to be uh, coming to Victoria in not, not too many months from now. So we're going to get to hang out. Oh, that's great. That'll be good. Uh, yeah. I have a plug at that point, which is that Chris also designed the logo for the Journal of David Foster Wallace Studies. Mm-hmm. And... Um, one of my roles with the journal is like fulfillment guy right now. Um, and so if you have uh, any interest in buying the journal, it's going to be back in stock on dfwsociety.org. If you would like to purchase a copy, uh, I really recommend the essay by Joseph Nash in there on the Pale King. Hmm. There's a lot of a lot of great stuff in there. Book reviews, letter from the editor, intros. Uh, great thing about existentialism from L.R. Dindolk, mm-hmm. previous podcast guest. Yeah, yeah. Um, Matt Luder, all Grace Chipperfield. There's all kinds of great stuff in there, but um, if you want a copy of it, soon it will be back in stock temporarily. Issue number one, issue number two coming very shortly. Uh, so I, I want to put a plug in for the journal, but also thank Chris for the designing the logo. Yeah, absolutely. Bravo, Chris. Um, lastly, we want to mention a, f- a few new patrons who have supported us on Patreon. We want to thank listener William Magos, who we got to meet at a conference uh, in 2017. He was there. That was cool to meet him. Uh, thanks so much also to Rob Short, who's been a guest on this show too and is a, is a great friend of ours. Uh, also is uh, the new president of the DFW Society. Uh, so Matt, right. has, Matt has taken over the role of treasurer. And uh, we kind of have like rota- yearly annual rotating roles, I guess, Matt. Annual-ish. Trying to. Trying to yeah. move roles around more. Yeah. Yep. So Rob's, uh, Rob's the, the new prez. And so we're looking forward to his uh, tenure there. And uh, also an account called Character by Design has supported that, us. That's that's Chris uh, Pikarski, our former podcast guest. That's his business, Character by Design. That's right, yeah. Thank you so much, Chris. 
And uh, so now we have 37 people uh, who are patrons supporting the show. So we want to thank all of you. It's so amazing that you're that you're partnering with us. We're so appreciative. I have one more uh, note that I want to make, and that's uh, about one of our um, DFW Society patrons who passed away this mm-hmm. month. And that is yeah. my friend James Dahl. And uh, I want to talk for just a minute about James mm-hmm. Dahl because he was a good friend of mine. He um, is one of the producers, was one of the producers of The End of the Tour, the mm-hmm. movie uh, with Jason Siegel, Jesse Eisenberg. Mm-hmm. And he was very supportive of the Dave Foster Wallace Society from the beginning. Yeah. And he uh, also served uh, on the advisory council of the Ransom Center and worked for them to procure some new materials, uh, to supplement the archives that are already there for David Foster Wallace. Mm -hmm. And his family requested in lieu of flowers that donations be made to the Ransom Center in his name. Mm -hmm. And so I would like to put out a call for our listeners that if you're interested in contributing anything in honor of James Dahl, and really, honestly, in in honor of David Foster Wallace, Mm -hmm. now's the time to do it to the Ransom Center. Their website, we'll put a link in the show notes, but it's hrc.utexas.edu. And there's a big uh, contribute button on their homepage there. You can do a one-time contribution. You can do a recurring contribution. Um, But it would really mean a lot to me uh, in memory of James, who was a Mm -hmm. friend. And really, I'd lined up to be next on the podcast. Yeah, we were, were, he was totally going to be a guest really soon. It was really weird and uncanny, shocking timing. And we had just emailed with him uh, in January about being on this show. And I, he has a really unique perspective on, um, you know, David Foster Wallace's legacy and really how that movie came to be. And I want to, and the ransom center, all of it, I wanted him to talk about, and he was totally up for. uh, So, you know, I'm, I'm really sad that that never worked out. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but there's this opportunity now for uh, to make a donation in his name to the Ransom Center. And like I say, it would mean a lot to me as his friend um, if, if anyone chose to do that. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's all I have to say about that. That's really all I have for this episode. I do want to wish Kyle, if you're still there, <laughs> Kyle, I want to wish you fingers crossed on that book you have out for some. Thank you right very now. much. Uh, yeah, please I, I keep us posted on time, that. But like, I want to really, read it. Really excited. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you. This has been a, Yeah, thanks totally so much, great. Kyle. Uh really appreciate it, man. This has been this has been lovely. And thanks again, as usual, to our friends Robin O'Neill and Parquet Courts for letting us use their art for our icon and intro and outro music. This has been episode forty five. Thanks for listening. Catch me now as I say. darkness I thought to be extinct Alright, I'm not even hitting stop record yet. We're at on <laughs> yeah, my app, one hour um, 50 minutes, Kyle. I told yeah. you it was like a rush to even get everything I'm in. I'm shocked. In I know. Almost I'm shocked. Two freaking <laughs> hours. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I, don't, get I don't get it. I don't get it. We're, we're almost at happen? two gigs. Two gigs worth of talking. Yeah. <laughs>
My computer is just chugged for memory. I have to like dump these episodes <laughs> all the time. <laughs> well, David's going to go edit this tomorrow and we'll post it the next day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get right. that. I get that joke. And I don't even know, but I get that joke. <laughs> oh, man.